Romans, Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, we conclude our time together in Romans chapter 13 this morning. And next week we begin Romans chapter 14. I was joking with the staff a week or two ago and told them, you know, for all of us who thought chapters 9, 10, and 11 were in any measurable way controversial, well, that's true. And if you thought Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7 was controversial, well, that's true as well. Well, just wait till you get to Romans chapter 14. I mean, Paul just keeps throwing all of these controversial things at us. So, for example, who is the weaker brother? Well, of course, I guarantee everyone seated in this auditorium this morning thinks it doesn't matter what the issue is. I'm not the weaker brother, right? Well, we're going to talk about the weaker brother next week. So um, I pray that you'll join us back next week as we engage Romans chapter 14. If you're visiting with us this morning, let me extend to you a welcome as, as well from Pastor Laramie. Each week at Woodlawn, we gather our hearts and our attentions, our affections around the Word of God. We want to be driven in our worship by the Word of God. And one of the ways that we do that is by preaching through books of the Bible. We believe that God has inspired, that the Word of God, all 66 books in this Bible are the inspired Word of God. And if we want to know who God is, then we must give our time and attention to the entirety of His Word. And we accomplish that through preaching through books of the Bible. And this week, or over the course of the last year and a half, we've been in the book of Romans. And we'll conclude Romans uh, right before our Christmas kickoff. And then starting at the first of next year, we're going to dive in together to the book of Exodus. So uh, if you want to begin reading now the book of Exodus in preparation for that. Romans chapter 13, you'll notice how this text of scripture begins. It begins with a strong plea. It begins with a strong word. Uh, your Bibles, my Bible and the ESV translates the beginning of this phrase here, this passage in verse 11, besides this. Maybe you could even translate it, and especially. Uh, Paul is making a strong plea of what he is about to say based off of the context of Romans chapter 12, verses 1, down through the conclusion of what we talked about last week, love. So Paul is going to make a plea for you and me as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to live our lives in a certain way, and he's going to do that founded upon the foundation of Paul's plea are all of these things that he has just said to us that we might live our lives transformed, that we might love one another deeply, that we might live our lives as people under submission, that we might care well for one another, that we might give honor to whom honor is due, that we might pay taxes. And based off of all of these things, Paul concludes Romans chapter 13 with this, with this plea. Believers must live their lives. Believers must live their lives knowing that Christ's return is sure, intentionally pursuing Christ and 
rejecting the pleasures of the world. Believers must live their lives knowing that Christ is indeed coming again, intentionally pursuing Christ and rejecting the world. So it begins here in verse 11. In verse 11, down through the first part of verse 12, Paul reminds us that as believers, we should desire to live godly lives for Christ is coming again. We should desire to live godly lives for Christ is coming again. Look how he says it here in verses 11 down to the first part of verse 12. And especially, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Much like what Paul has done for us in First and Second Thessalonians, you might remember our time together in those two books a few years ago, Paul here too makes a plea for us to live our lives in light of a certain reality. And that reality that he points us to is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, but even more specifically, he points us to this return of Christ. The Bible has been very clear from the Old Testament into the New Testament that there is indeed this day there is this moment at which the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is indeed going to come again. And notice what Paul says, hey believers, you know the time. Now, Paul isn't saying, hey, you know exactly when Christ is coming again. Of course, Paul, in a number of his writings in First and Second Thessalonians and Colossians and Galatians, he is continually pitting uh, this idea of time, of darkness and light against one another. Paul is saying that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, God by his spirit has given us discernment so that we might know exactly what the time is. We live in a difficult time, do we not? We live in a dark time in which evil prevails. But friends, we're not the first grouping of people that have lived in dark times. There is a sense in which from the moment of Christ's ascension until Christ returns, we are living in this time of utter darkness and devastation. You know, Paul says, exactly what time it is. And what time is that? The hour has come for you to awake from your sleep. Paul is saying, hey church, you've got to awaken from, from, your, from your moral drowsiness. You've got to wake up and, and realize that this gospel narrative to which we all profess faith toward an end it's not just a gospel narrative that we gather on a weekly basis and say amen to or sing songs that move our souls about. 
But it's a gospel narrative that Paul says is intended to permeate every area of our lives and direct us in our living. You know what time it is. The hour has indeed come for you and me to get busy doing the work of the Lord. But notice how he says it. That time that has come is a time that is intended that we might indeed awaken from our sleep. Look with me in the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 5. And listen how Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 6 through 7. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 6 through 7. So then... Let us not sleep, as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. Paul is writing in 1 Thessalonians, and here in the book of Romans, to whom? To the pagans who live outside the context of the church, or to the gathering of the people of God inside the church? He's writing to the people of the church and in the church. Paul isn't giving a plea to the pagan world in this context, hey, wake up and believe the gospel. No, he is saying to believers, wake up and live the gospel. Wake up and live out your lives as the Lord Jesus Christ has commissioned you and called you. See, the temptation, brothers and sisters, The temptation in human life is to sleep. Think about the number of times that the gospel writer, think of the number of times Paul himself is writing to the church, whether it be the church at Corinth, the church at Colossae, the church at Galatia, or pick one of the seven churches to whom he's written in the book of Revelation. And look at the plea that Paul is having to give to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, friends, the temptation is for you and me to do exactly the opposite of what the writer of the book of Hebrews calls us to. The writer of the book of Hebrews calls us to continually and forever place our eyes on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what is our temptation, friend? To hit cruise control. To sleep. To not intentionally pursue Christ. To be lazy, if you will, in our spiritual walk. To neglect our own personal devotion to the Word. To neglect the gathering of our family together in the instruction of the Lord, to neglect the gathering of the body of Christ that the text of Scripture calls us to give our lives toward, to neglect engaging our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers with the gospel of Christ. It's amazing the number of announcements, if you will, or pleas that we have to give in the context of our church family. On a yearly basis, we tend to give a theme of what we want to focus on. And so this year we've been in a theme of 
of discipleship and, and encouraging you to gather in, in small groups for discipleship. We've focused on fellowship. We've focused on evangelism. There are certain things that we as Christian people, certain spiritual disciplines as Christian people that we regularly, regularly need to be reminded of. Have you ever showed up on a Sunday morning and the pastor and the announcement says, hey church, I want to remind you this week, men, please don't go home and beat your wives this week. Maybe I should do that. I saw Miss Janet look at art. How many times have you showed up to church and you've heard a plea, hey church, please, please be reminded of our collective responsibility of giving? How many times have you shown up to church and, and heard a plea that we should be reminded, we should be sharing the gospel this week? How many times have you shown up to church and you heard the pastor say, hey, I want to remind you, or maybe you received a letter or a phone call and, and the pastor reminds you, hey, I want to encourage you to, to not neglect the gathering of the people of God. I would say probably all of us have, have heard those announcements on numerous times, right? Why? Our temptation is to sleep. Our temptation is to push the pause. But you know what happens, friends? Five years pass by, 10 years pass by, or maybe 40 years pass by. And you reflect back on life. And you notice you've been sleeping. And the devastation of the church asleep wrecks havoc on our families and on our cultures. So Paul writes, church, desire to live a godly life. Why? Jesus Christ is coming again. Look what he says. For salvation is nearer to us now at this very moment than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. This phrase here, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed, is a confession of faith in the return of Christ. It's also a true statement as we think about salvation proper, if you will, the fact that Christ has come to redeem humanity, and we as believers in Christ are part of that redeemed. There is a right understanding of salvation in three phases. I have been saved, I am saved, and I will be saved. Or theologically, we place those in three primary categories. We look at it in terms of I have been saved, I have been justified. There was a time, a moment, a specific time, a specific moment in which God himself has made a legal declaration against my life. Frankie Johnson, you are no longer guilty. You've been justified. That's in the past. We think of salvation in the present, I am saved, as the theological term of sanctification. 
We are working out our salvation. We are living out the call of the gospel. We are hopefully being made more like Christ today than we were yesterday. So I am saved. And then the future tense, I will be saved. We use the theological term glorification. Glorification is that moment in which Christ himself returns and he makes all things new. Paul here in Romans chapter 13 verse 11 is speaking of this process of glorification. Salvation is nearer us now than it was before. That's a simple fact. The further we removed we are from the ascension of Christ, the closer we are to the return of Christ. Jesus is coming again. And that should sow, that should sow into the hearts and lives of people who believe a desire to live a godly life. Now notice what Paul says here. He speaks of the return of Christ in terms of imminence. The return of Christ is imminent. What does that mean? For the Apostle Paul, it was true from the moment in which Christ ascended, even at the time of his writing, Paul lived with the theological understanding that at any moment, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ could return. Jesus could, at this moment, come again. This is the hope that he's written to the Thessalonians. If you go back and read First and Second Thessalonians, he's writing to that church that they might have hope, not in their concern, right? If you remember, grandma and grandpa have died before Jesus has come again, and, and what is the hope? Should we stop following this Christian narrative because they died and Jesus didn't return? And what does Paul say? No, 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 no. Our hope is in the return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. Paul here is speaking with a sense of urgency. Jesus could come at this very moment. But can we be honest, friends? You can look at the history of our country and the history of religious movements, and you can see periods of time in which the sense of urgency of the return of Christ looks just like this in our own history. I'm a product of the 80s, born 1980, October 23rd, 1980. I have very vivid memories of being a four and five-year-old kid and my parents hauling me around to every tent revival in the Alexandria, what we called central Louisiana area. And yes, there were even trips down to Mildell and Zachary. And what was the church's topic? What was the reflection of the preaching? Jesus is coming again. Unfortunately, friends, too oftentimes, the theology of the church is not driven by the word of God but it's driven by the events and culture. So what's, what's happening in the early 80s? You're coming off of the 70s. And the 70s were a train wreck for this country, particularly the late 70s. And a lot of fear was instilled in the hearts and lives of people. 
And so you had famous, well-known evangelists here in, in Louisiana. Uh, from the Bible to, from the bottle to the Bible. There's a, there's a drink that's uh, named after him. What was that guy's name, Erica? You remember? Jack Daniels was his name. So his stick as a preacher was from the bottle to the Bible, and he preached all over Alexandria. Large revival meetings. Why? The church lived with this tension that Jesus could be coming at any moment. And friends, I must confess, even in my own heart, in my own life, I don't live my life with that sense of urgency. And because of that, I hit the pause button. I don't have to be as obedient. I don't have to be as faithful. I don't have the same compelling urgency to share the gospel, to love my family like I ought, to participate in the life of the church as I should, to engage the word of God. But Paul says, church, awaken. Are you asleep this morning, friend? Have you been sleeping? Can you see evidences of that sleep in your life? Would you confess that to the Lord as sin this morning? And as you confess it as sin, would you ask the Lord at this moment to help you, to grant you desires to live a godly life for Jesus is coming again. And then look what Paul does in the last half of verse 12 down through verse 14. Paul says we should intentionally, pay attention to that word, intentionally, we should intentionally pursue Christ and reject the pleasures of the world. Believers should intentionally pursue Christ and reject the pleasures of the world. Starting in verse 12b, he's going to give us three statements back to back. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness. How do I intentionally pursue Christ and reject evil? Look what he says. Let us cast off the works of darkness. Number two, let us put on the armor of light. Verse 13, let us walk properly. Let us walk decently. He gives us a paradigm for what it looks like in the heart and lives of a believer to intentionally pursue Christ and intentionally reject evil. Uh, this phrase here, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light and let us walk decently 
are three verbs that are placed in the middle tense. And what that means is we bear a responsibility for doing exactly this. So let me give you a, a clearer um, a definition or a, clear, a, a better translation, if you will. So then let us ourselves cast off the works of darkness and let us ourselves put on the armor of light and let us ourselves walk decently. Who bears the responsibility for sanctification in our hearts and our lives? You do. I do. Now, you guys can also tell from your English Bibles, to whom is this responsibility given? To whom is the responsibility given to cast off the works of darkness and to put on the armor of God and to walk decently? Who bears that responsibility? Who? Okay, the believer. I like that. That's good. Anybody else? Notice Paul is saying we collectively, friends. This is how we are to collectively live with one another. See, friends, it is absolutely impossible for you to live your Christian life in isolation. It is not the gospel call, it is not the intended purpose of God for you to come to faith in Christ and then live out your Christian life by yourself. I'm telling you right now, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the authority of the word of God, you will fail. Why? Because it's not God's design. It's like saying you wanna build a house. And so you hop in your car and you start driving around Shenandoah thinking you're going to get a house on a, on a plot of land. You can't drive a car and build a house. You got to swing a hammer and you got to put wood up. You can't live a Christian life and do so disconnected from the body of Christ. This is a compelling text of Scripture for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to give us the way in which we overcome sin and encourage one another in our faithful walk with the Lord. Let me sum it up for you as the writer of Hebrews does. Look in your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 I'm going to read, begin reading in verse 22. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. And listen at the writer of Hebrews, even as he uses uh, these compelling phrases, let us, let us draw near with a pure heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 
and let us consider how to stir up one another for what purpose? To love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Do you see the comparison between what he's doing in Romans and what the writer of Hebrews is doing in Hebrews chapter 10? Both of them are speaking of this imminent return of Christ. Friends, if you want to know how best to intention, not just how best, let me say this, if you want to intentionally walk with the Lord, you must gather with the people of God. If you want to live your life rejecting sin, you must do so walking with the people of God. Christ is coming again. His return is imminent. There is a call for you and me to live intentionally pursuing Christ and intentionally rejecting the darkness of this world, the pleasures of this world. Would you review your life for a few moments, friend? How do you find yourself intentionally pursuing Christ? How do you find yourself intentionally engaged in a process that causes you to look more like Jesus today than you did yesterday? How is that being accomplished in your life? Can we make a corporate confession of of sin this morning? By corporately acknowledging I don't care where any of you are at this very moment right now. I do care, but I don't care in this way. Every single one of us, at some moment in our life, we've hit the pause button. Let us, let us, let us, Look at verse 13. How do we accomplish these three calls? To cast off the works of darkness, put on the armor of light, and to walk decently. By the way, Paul has already used this word walk in the book of Romans. Let me show them to you just real quickly. Look at chapter 6, verse 4, and then chapter 8, verse 4. Chapter 6, verse 4. Chapter 6 is this gospel call. It's a reflection of, of baptism. And what is the purpose of our pursuing Christ through baptism, of trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ? Verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead in the glory of the Father, we too might what? Walk in newness of life. Chapter 8, verse 4. 
Paul is talking about how we live in the spirit. Remember, he just got finished with chapter seven saying, whoo, sin is difficult. It's hard. It will get you. How do I live by the spirit? Verse four, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do what? Walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And you can read in the other pastoral epistles, uh, Paul's use of this word to walk. It's a major theme for him. Let us walk decently. How do we accomplish these tasks? He gives us three categories in which we accomplish these tasks. We do so by not participating in uncontrolled parties, drinking. We do so by not participating in unstained sexual expressions. And we do so by not engaging in unkind social interactions. Look at the three categories that he gives us by noting two instances of each category. My Bible here in verse 13 says, let us walk properly or decently in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness. This word orgies here is an interpretation. All, all translation of the text of scripture is an interpretation. Uh, this word is a word that more readily defines um, engaging in some type of party where there is an excess of food and drink. So Paul is saying, don't engage yourself in ungodly parties. When you do so, there's a temptation to, to overeat and to engage in being a, a glutton, and there's a temptation to engage in being drunk, and that is sinful. There's a chance also that Paul has given us a progression here. If you engage in parties of the world, notice what else it will do for you. Drunkenness leads to sexual perversion. He gives us two statements as he relates to sexual perversion, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not engaging in sex that is outside of the means in which God has given it. In fact, this word sexual morality is the same word that Paul will oftentimes use for the marriage bed. So we might more readily say, don't be having sex outside of marriage is what Paul is saying. It's not that difficult. But what happens? We engage with the worlds. We attend the world's parties. We engage in the debauchery, and it leads to debauchery in our own lives. As we think about debaucheries, of course, Paul has already given for us a listing. In fact, go back to chapter one real quick of Romans. Chapter one, Romans chapter one. Paul has already given us a listing of, of all of the reasons why the wrath of God is gonna be poured out against mankind. Mankind is indeed engaged in all of this sexual perversion. Men with men, women with women. It's unnatural. But look at specifically at uh, chapter 1, verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. 
They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decrees, that those who practice certain, such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And friends, we are living in a culture where what is right is wrong, and what is wrong is right, and what is upside down is right side up, and vice versa. Now catch this, friends. To whom is Paul writing Romans? The church. Friends, when we take our eyes off of Jesus, it should be no surprise that the human heart separated from God will engage in all sorts of debauchery. And Paul is calling the church to redeem itself by not living in this way, and look how he closes in verse 14 with two imperatives. How do I intentionally ultimately live my life in a way that's pleasing to God? I do that by intentionally pursuing Christ and rejecting sin, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh, for the desires of the flesh to find itself alive in your body. How do I do it? He first states it in the positive. Put on Jesus. Now most of us thought we could put on Jesus during the early 2000s by wearing Christian jewelry. So we walked around with bands that said WWJD. And we thought, how cute. When Paul here is reflecting on putting on Christ, friend, he's not asking you and me to wear some piece of jewelry that gives us an opportunity to appease our conscience and somehow outwardly say to other people, I'm trying to do what Jesus commands me to do. What Paul is saying in Romans chapter 14 is the way we put on Christ is that we intentionally, daily, consciously, intentionally look to Jesus Christ and see him for who he really is. See, friends, the heart of obedience is not in the doing the heart of obedience is what we rightly think about Jesus. And what Paul is wanting you and me to do is to look to Jesus and see his beauty, 
What he wants us to do is look to Jesus and see his sacrifice. What he wants us to do is look at Jesus and see what Jesus gave up for you and me. What he wants us to do is look at Jesus and see the brutality of the cross and what he had to endure to accomplish salvation for all people. And friends, when we look to Jesus and we rightly understand who he is and who we are, when we have the right image of Christ, Paul says at that moment, you've clothed yourself with Jesus and you're rightly living for him. But catch this, friends. All it takes is not a lifetime of looking this way from Jesus. All it takes is not a lifetime of of just a degree of looking away from Jesus. All it takes is a moment. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, in that moment of sin, Satan has not filled our minds with the forgetfulness of God. He's filled our minds with the hatefulness of God. Are you looking to Jesus this morning, friend? Does the beauty of Christ, is the sacrifice of Christ enough for you? Does it compel you to live out your Christian life? Are you intentionally putting on the Lord Jesus Christ? And then notice how he closes with the negative. And make no provisions for the flesh to gratify its desires. Paul isn't saying... Let's see just how closely I can get to the line of sin and keep from sinning. Paul is calling the church to see the line of sin and intentionally run in the opposite direction. Put on Christ and make absolutely No provision whatsoever for the flesh. But yeah, Lord, just this one time. I don't have any intention to do anything more than just this one time. Look at this one website, and I promise, Lord, I will never do it anymore. I don't have any intention, sweetheart. Just this one time, I'm going to go to a dinner with a female that is a coworker of mine, but I promise you, it won't happen again, and there's no malicious, malicious intent intended. Just this one time. And all it takes is one time. We had just moved, and our neighbor found out I was a preacher. And of course, the neighbor finds out you're a preacher and they want to engage you on a whole host of conversations. And we did. 
until this one day, my neighbor called and said, I need to meet with you immediately. I said, great, I'll meet with you immediately. And my neighbor said to me, I have a confession. I was out of town on a work trip. I've been married for 10 years, completely faithful to my wife. But last night, I had sex with another woman. And you wanna know what my first question was? How long have you been watching pornography? See friends, the ox doesn't just end up in the ditch from being in the center of the road. There's a process that gets the ox from the center of the road into the ditch. And the problem for too many Bible-believing, Christ-exalting Christians is we're not careful in how we walk. And we're driving our cars down the center of the road thinking we're walking in faithfulness to Christ. And little by little, the car starts to veer to the right until all of a sudden we find ourselves completely stuck in the ditch. And Paul says, if you don't want to be in the ditch of rebellion against God... Live your lives intentionally pursuing Christ and intentionally rejecting sin. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for the work that Christ has accomplished on our behalf. We thank you that you've demonstrated this incredible love and you've called us as believers to found our lives upon it and that by doing it, Lord, we might live rightly with you. God, we hear the demands of this text of Scripture, and in some ways, we acknowledge this morning they're too difficult to carry out. And yet, Lord, we pause for a few moments. And we reflect on who you are and what you've done for us. And we're reminded, God, there is no one more worthy than you. There is no one more beautiful than you. 
There is no one more glorious than you. There's no one more fulfilling than you. And so God, we would ask that as a church, we might be marked as a people who intentionally, together, pursue Christ and reject the pleasures of this world. Would you spend a few moments where you're seated this morning and reflect on this text of scripture? How are the truths of this text being fleshed out in your life? In what ways do you sense an urgency of the return of Christ in your life? How is that evident? In what ways are you intentionally rejecting sin? Maybe for some of you here this morning, you need to make an intentional decision today to delete every social media app that's on your phone. Maybe some of you need to make a commitment that you're going to be more intentional in gathering with the people of God. Maybe some of you need to make a commitment that you're going to pursue other people with the gospel of Christ. Maybe some of you this morning need to make major priority changes in your family. In just a few moments, friend, we're going to stand and corporately respond to the preaching of God's word. If you're here and you have questions about what it means to trust in Christ, what does salvation mean? Myself and Pastor Travis will be down front and we would delight to share with you how you can trust in Christ. Or friend, please feel free to turn to someone seated next to you. For there are plenty of people in this sanctuary around you that would be delighted to share with you at this moment how you can trust Christ. Secondly, maybe you would like for just one of us to pray with you. To pray that indeed the truths of this text might resonate in your life. To pray that your sanctification might increase. We would delight in shepherding your heart by praying for you. And thirdly, maybe God has impressed upon your heart that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with him. This would be an opportunity for you to express your interest and being part of this faith family. Lord, as we respond to you now, may our response be pleasing, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.
Would you 